Happy New Year to everyone. Okay, thank you. I count it a huge privilege to be here with you today and to speak to you on your very first service in 2011. Before we turn to worshipping the Lord our God, I thought I'd share with you a few words. These words were originally written by a poet, Minnie Louise Haskins, in a poem which she published in 1908 called God Knows. But the words will be familiar to you because they were made famous by George VI in his broadcast to the Empire in 1939, just after the Second World War had started. And I hadn't realized until recently, I was actually very up to date, because there's a film coming out in the next few months that focuses on George VI and these very words. It's called The Gate of the Year. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. I'm now going to pray. And during my prayer, I'm going to leave some silent time for us to say inside ourselves the things that we might personally want to say to the Lord at this time. At the end, I'll invite us to say the Lord's Prayer together. And don't worry if we say it in different ways. We'll muddle through. It doesn't matter. We'll just say it the way that's normal for you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, as we face into a new year, we want to start by coming before you in thanksgiving and confession. We confess that we sometimes forget you in the busyness of our lives. We know that the prayer of the righteous person is effective because it is you to whom we pray. And yet, we are often apt to forget to pray. We know that when we confess our sins before you and truly repent, you are faithful to forgive us. And yet, we also sometimes forget to do that too and carry things we don't need to carry. So we take time this morning to stop and take stock. And in the silence of each of our hearts, as I pause over the next minute or so, we speak to you, Lord, of the things we especially want to say to you at this time, and maybe lay down the things at the start of a new year that we especially want to lay down. We thank you for all that you mean to us and we ask you, Lord God, to help us focus on you afresh in this new year as together we seek to serve you faithfully in our families, in our workplaces, schools and places of learning, in this community of your people and in all the other places that you may take us this year. Your word says that your steadfast love never ceases and that your mercies never come to an end. Help us to always remember that you are our portion and it is our joy in you that is our strength. And now as a community of your followers here today, we pray together the prayer that you taught your first disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as 
reading this morning from the Old Testament is taken from Psalm 55 and it's verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And the New Testament lesson is from Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. When Anne invited me by email to lead your service this morning, I emailed back to her and said I'd be very glad to come. And I asked her what subject she would like me to speak on for the sermon. And before she came back to me, the words of a hymn came very strongly into my mind. It's actually the chorus from this hymn, and we may sing it later. In fact, we will sing it later. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. These specific words have meant an awful lot to me during my life, and I wondered if I had felt lead poisoning, (laughs) and that I wasn't really hearing for you. So it was a delight when Anne came back to me, not with a sermon subject, but with an outline of what faces you as a community of God's people as you start this new year of 2011. It was as if in my Gideon-like weakness and self-doubt, God sent Anne to bring reassurance. So as I come to you this morning, I pray that I come not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. And I pray that I am sensing what he's saying to you today, which would seem to me to be that he wants you to just trust and obey. Put your hand in his hand, and that will be to you much better than a light and much safer than a known way. The texts that Ken read to us this morning are very familiar texts. In fact, they may be so familiar that we're rather apt to let them go just over our head. We we listen to the words, but we've read them or heard them so often, they don't mean as much as perhaps they should. So this morning, I thought we'd explore the New Testament text from the book of Philippians, and see if we can let it settle a little bit more richly in our hearts. Just to let you know where I'm going, I'm going to look at the background first to give us a bit of context, and then I'm going to look at the text itself in detail, and finally a little bit at application. The letter to the Philippians is an unusual letter in comparison to the other letters in the New Testament. No one doubts that it was written by Paul. It has too many of Paul's characteristic writing style. He wrote it from a prison somewhere, 
There's doubt about that. It could have been a prison in Ephesus, or it could have been when he was under house arrest in Rome. And that makes a difference as to when the date was, but for our purpose, that doesn't really matter this morning. What matters is that he did write it from a prison. And that's particularly interesting because his overall theme in this book of Philippians is one of maintaining joy and unity despite adverse circumstances. Paul, you'll remember, was more than suitably qualified to do this. If you remember back to Romans 8, he talks about God's love and he enumerates all the things that had happened to him. Trouble, hardship, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, persecution. No, he says, in all these things as Christians, we're more than conquerors. Nothing but nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In addition to understanding this idea of expressing unity and joy despite adverse circumstances, this letter also contains some of the most wonderful passages of the New Testament. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Or our hope of a time coming in the future when at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Jesus Christ the Lord. Philippi was a a Gentile church. This is evident from the fact that Paul hardly makes any mention at all. He doesn't quote at all from the Old Testament in this letter. But it was one church that he held in great affection. Their church life and their ministry were going well. And the purpose of his letter was to say thank you for all the support they'd given him. He calls them his beloved and long for brothers and sisters and his joy in his crown. Elsewhere, he refers to the grace of God that has been given to this church. Something was afflicting them at this time, though, and we're not really told what it was. There was an internal problem that Paul deals with very discreetly at the beginning of chapter 4, but there was an external problem. We don't really know what the external problem that was causing the adverse circumstances was. It was maybe their neighbours, or maybe it was the Roman authorities. So Paul had another reason for writing this letter, not just thanksgiving. He wrote it to build up this church by encouraging them to think in a Christian way, and to stand united and firm in the light of anticipated trouble. I don't actually read Greek, haven't had enough time with having a legal career before this, but apparently the Greek verb phroneo means to think in terms of practical reasoning, and this is used an inordinately large number of times in this letter. What Paul was doing was saying to the Philippians, Think God's way. That's the best way for you. That's the background. Now look at the text. There are five matters that Paul links together. He's talking about rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. And he says to the Philippians, this is your antidote to anxiety. And if you can grasp this, the peace that passes all understanding will keep your hearts in Christ Jesus, despite what's happening. Paul is not saying that believers shouldn't have emotions. Emotions, including anxiety, are a God-given part of us. But what Paul is saying is there's a way to cope with it and not to let it overwhelm. And this is his coping way. So in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. 
Paul is suggesting that his readers embrace a constant stance of joy, no matter what the circumstances are. Paul knew, because he says the word rejoice twice, he knew that this was going against the grain for them. He said, no, it's not natural, but you do it. What he's driving at is, you're going to put your trust in the right place if you do this rejoicing. In Habakkuk, there's a wonderful image for us in chapter 3, 17 to 19, of what happens to a believer's spirit when they do this rejoicing bit. I'm going to read it to you. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and their fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I shall be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. What Paul's talking about here in this rejoicing is more of an act of the will than an emotion. Anxiety, adverse circumstances holds the believer in a negative mindset, but rejoicing does the opposite and releases them to focus on God. Then in verse 5, Paul says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul's telling the Philippians to be very gentle to each other, to be considerate. They're not all going to feel great all the time. Some of them are going to be more fearful than others, more down than others, and they need to keep unity, keep together, keep being considerate to one another, and don't fret, he says. The Lord knows what you need, and the Lord is near. The Lord promised the Philippians, just as he promises us today, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Then in verse 6 he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Prayer and anxiety are two great opposing forces to the Christian faith. Paul seems to be saying, Let go your burdensome worries over which you've got no control. Instead, pray, letting God know what you need, and do so with thanksgiving. Stop. Draw breath. Remember, it's on Christ, the solid rock, that you stand. All around is sinking sand. Anxiety is, as I've said before, part of our human makeup. It's part of the psychological fight-flight mechanism that keeps us safe from danger. So Paul isn't saying believers shouldn't be anxious or you're less of a Christian because you're anxious. What he's saying is don't let it overcome you and help each other to take control of it last verse is verse 7 and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus this is the clincher there's an echo of the military about the word guard and the Philippines would have well understood this because Philippi was really populated by Roman soldiers who had served in the army and were settled in Philippi we none of us can fully comprehend the extent of God's love to us But here we've got a strong image of a sentry standing guard over our hearts and minds. Paul's telling the Philippians that if they will but let him, God's protective custody will extend to the very core of their beings, to their deepest thoughts and emotions. This is the end result of the effort in which we're helped by the Holy Spirit to rejoice and pray with thanksgiving. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he brings the peace that the world has no understanding about. And to quote an advert rather out of context, this peace touches the bits that other peace can't touch. 
I also reminded of another old hymn, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. How do we apply it to ourselves today? Paul seems to have a clear strategy in mind here. One of my other jobs is as a therapeutic counsellor. And to me, this sounds remarkably like first century cognitive behavioural therapy. What Paul's saying is, do the rejoicing, the praying and give thanks. That's an act of your mind. That's the cognitive bit. The behavioural bit is changing from a mindset of anxiety to a mindset of faith. And the third step follows on, as with cognitive behavioural therapy, the third step is the emotions. What follows on, Paul says, is this peace that passes all understanding. The difference between cognitive behavioural therapy and what Paul's doing here is that Christ is involved and he brings a peace that's not a psychological peace that's induced by human effort. He brings the peace that only God can give, the peace that passes all understanding. And this is the peace, and you'll find I quote hymns, I, I should say as an aside, part of my own ministry with QP is with the elderly. So I'm always singing and quoting old hymns. So here we are. This is the same piece that Horatio Spafford talked about and was able to sing about with the wonderful hymn, When Peace Like a River. If you know the background to that hymn, Horatio Spafford was a, a businessman in Chicago and his business completely went up in flames in the great Chicago fire. Within 48 hours, believe it or not, he got news that his wife and four children had been in a shipwreck. All four children were drowned. Only his wife survived. And this is the man that was able then to write, It is well, it is well with my soul. At a time when his natural instincts would have been screaming that it was otherwise. As I was thinking how to further illustrate this I thought I'd take us back in our memories to November and the wonderful images that we had of the 33 Chilean miners coming out of the depths below. If you remember, wonderful images of the cave and the phoenix capsule coming through the hewn rock um, into the cave where they were. And I was thinking that anxiety is like that. We sometimes feel as if we're in a cave. And what God, by his Holy Spirit, does, sends Jesus, like the Phoenix capsule, into the caves of our anxiety. And what we have to do is just step into his capsule-like embrace by loving him, rejoicing and praying. And he lifts us up to the surface where we have the freedom to be in the light and to be in that peace that he gives to us. It's like Paul was talking to the Philippians earlier in his letter in chapter 2, is also talking to us today. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. There were several key points which occurred to me as I was preparing today. The key points come not just from the texts that we read and our hymns and the Psalms and also the story of Gideon. God understands our weaknesses. He knows exactly what we're like and he knows what faces us in every moment of every day. He is there to walk with us and beneath are the everlasting arms. For our part, we just need to draw close to him and in rejoicing and praying with thankful hearts, 
we can rest assured that our trust in him will never be in vain. As it was with Gideon, God will bring reassurances of his love along the way and awareness to us that he is aware of what is happening. And he will bring that promised inner peace. Most of all, he'll steady us and help us face 2011, whatever that may bring. And we just need to remember that our faith is built on nothing less than the solid rock that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen. We're now going to come together in intercessory prayer. Intercessing is just holding others before the presence of Almighty God. And it's an incredible privilege that we have as Christians that we can do this. So let's pray together. Dear Lord God, at this turn of the year, marked already by a terrorist attack in Egypt, we look back at the many things that our news has brought from across the world to our attention over the last 12 months. Yes, there were joys like the miraculous escape of the Chilean miners, but there were many, many sorrows. We think of earthquakes in Haiti and Chile. We think of war in Afghanistan. We think of the events in Cumbria. We think of other natural disasters such as the flooding in Pakistan, volcanic eruption in Iceland, the mining tragedy in New Zealand. And we lift before you now the many, many thousands of people across our globe still affected by oppression, loss, grief, hunger, pain, lack of adequate housing, sanitation, lack of human care. In this year of 2011, Lord, we ask you to have mercy on them and to bring relief in every way. And particularly, may they have an awareness of your continued love despite adverse circumstances. We are weak, but you are strong, and to you nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible. We particularly ask for the floods to stop in Queensland and Australia at this moment. Dear Lord Jesus, bring relief and may they get through to those that are presently cut off. Closer to home, we think of our own nation and the austerity measures here that have resulted in job losses and insecurity across our society. Lord, in this time of continued uncertainty for many, may we in this year ahead learn again as a nation to put our trust in you. We ask for guidance for all those in governmental authority to carry out their tasks fairly and wisely, guided by your Holy Spirit, and that whether or not they would recognize you as a source of guidance. At this time, we particularly lift the family of Joanna Yates before you at this time of tragic loss for them. And we ask you to be with them. Here in our community at Hillhead, we lift before you, Katrina, and in the quietness of our hearts and silence of the next minute or so, also name before you other members, friends and family who may be in need of a touch from you 
at this time. Lord, bless them and meet all their needs. Lastly, we bring ourselves before you and ask you to give us special grace to stand united, thankful for all your benefits, looking forward at the way ahead by trusting you, resting in the light of your presence and in your peace that passes understanding. For we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.